All right, we are in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn on over there. I'm going to be talking about caring at work. We're, we're using the theme, God's care forwarded, and how do we forward the care that God has given us, and today it is the subject of work. Now, I am going to use a passage about slaves and masters here, and there are some who think, well, this passage doesn't have anything to do with the workplace. It's about slaves and masters, which we don't have anymore, so there's really nothing to learn from this paragraph. Well, let me first say there are a lot of things here that are eternal principles, all right? And we're going to see those eternal principles in this passage as we read about how slaves are to treat their masters and masters their slaves. And just to let you know, more than half of the church of Jesus Christ in, in towns like Corinth and Ephesus would have been slaves. So the slave population is everywhere in the Roman Empire, and Paul is addressing a social institution which exists and is thoroughgoing in his day. But there is no affirmation, endorsement, or recommendation of slavery in this passage. Don't leave your Bible at this passage saying, well, I guess the Bible says we ought to have slaves. No. I'm going to show you the seeds of the freedom of slaves in this very passage right here this morning. I'm going to show you the teaching and how God views human beings that is in this passage which broke the bonds of slavery. And we are praying we'll forever break the bonds of slavery. It is unjust and sinful for one man to own another. God did not intend that. And I don't think you will find an endorsement of slavery anywhere in the Scripture. And in fact, the evils of slavery in this country remain with us to this day. To this day, we deal with problems in our own city that I think, to some degree, go back to the day when human beings were torn from the hands and arms of their mothers and their fathers and sold on auction blocks in the French Quarter. So I have no interest in endorsing or in any way suggesting that the Bible teaches that we ought to have slaves. No, quite the opposite. Now, the workplace is an important place where you live out your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are often at work. If you're an average American worker, you may spend 56 hours a week with the folks at work. And apart from the relationships in the family... There's no relationship probably in your life that's more intense than your relationships at work. So you need to carry the gospel to your workplace. When you hear about Care Effect and what we're doing on Wednesday night, do not think to yourself, well, I can't get there on Wednesday night, so I don't have any opportunity to impact this city with the good news of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, your most powerful place may be the workplace where God has placed you, the people that are around you. In fact, if the men and women who are followers of Jesus in this city do not live out faithfully their salvation and commitment to Christ in the workplace, we will never see the spiritual transformation of New Orleans that we long for and pray for. 
It has to happen at work. If work is off limits to the gospel, then we have lost the most important venue that we have. But in fact, it is not off limits to the gospel. There are all kinds of ways in which God works through you as you connect to other human beings in your employment. And I want us to look at some of those principles in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 5, as Paul speaks to the population of the churches of his day and also of our day through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good He does, whether He is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. All right, just some principles here that apply in the workplace. And the first is follow instructions. God's called you into the workplace. Work is not part of the curse. It is part of what we had to do from creation. We were committed the created order, and God said, subdue it, tend, and keep it. And so that command that came before the fall sanctifies the workplace. So as you go into work, you are representing Christ, and you are to be a model employee. You're to do what the boss says do. Now, that's how you care for him. You're to care that he succeeds. God's cared for you. God's watched over you. He's poured out his life for you. And in like manner, as you go into the workplace, you are to care for the boss that is yours. So if you're an employee in a work environment, you follow instructions, you obey, as the Scripture says here. You may be saying, well, you don't know what my boss is telling me. <laughs> I know there are exceptions to the rule. And there are times when you are told to do something at work that contradicts the law of Christ. What do you do? You follow Christ. That's what you do. You may need to come up with creative alternatives where you go to your boss and say, I know you've asked me to do this, I tell you what, I am a follower of Jesus, and that makes me uncomfortable to do it, and I cannot do it in good conscience. But I do have a suggestion. What if I did this instead of the other? Now, he may or may not receive that alternative, but if you are in a place where you cannot faithfully live out your commitment to Christ, then you probably need to change jobs. Now, I think the workplace gets a bad rap. Because it is a, often a carnal and vulgar place. And I have been in a workplace where people cursed all the time and 
and it was difficult to go to work every day, and they cursed at me. I was a little cub reporter at the time. I thought, Lord, what are you going to do with me here? But you know what? I saw God work even in, in, the, in that environment until people started cleaning up their language when I showed up in the newsroom because, because they knew I was serious about my faith in Christ. God is using you in ways you can't identify. Maybe the longing to be working in a Christian environment needs to be translated into a longing to transform your workplace through the position God's given you. Now, you can't do that if you compromise what Jesus has taught you. You've got to be distinctive in language, in attitude, in your care for those around you. I mean, it's got to be evident that you are a follower of Jesus in your words and your deeds. You can't compromise that because if you do, you lose your forum. But if you maintain that with integrity and you stand firmly in your values, pretty soon people at work will be coming to you when they are in a moral or spiritual dilemma. They will be talking to you about the difficulties that they experience. One of the great illustrations of just following God in the workplace is the story of Joseph in the prisons of Egypt. That Joseph was sold into slavery is a scandal in the Old Testament. That it was done by evil people for wicked purposes is confessed. You meant it for evil, he says. And there in that environment, God was able to use Joseph to change the environment, to change people that were in the environment, and ultimately to minister to the world of his day and his own family that were separated from him. You don't know what God will do through your workplace. But brothers and sisters, I want you to go from this room knowing that you've got to claim your workplace for Jesus, whether you're in education, medicine, law, whatever it is. And you must get out of bed with a charge on your heart as you put on your clothes and head to work that I am not meandering around in this world. I am being sent by an awesome God who loves the people at my work. And today I'm going to represent my God as faithfully as I can. That is your calling. It is your true vocation. And if you will go to work with a sense of calling on your heart to represent Christ and be faithful to His kingdom, God will use you in the work. So follow instructions and give your best. The Scripture says here, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. We ought to be doing all that we can do. Why? Because we're not just hurrying when the boss comes by. We're not all of a sudden very busy when he comes by. Because our boss is in heaven. And he's watching us 24-7. And who we really work for is Jesus. In both the family and at work, the teaching of the scripture is, you do it as unto the Lord. Look at verse 21, submit to one another, how? 
out of reverence for Christ. That's chapter 5, verse 21. When you get into husbands and wives, they are to submit out of reverence for Christ and love one another out of reverence for Christ. And when you get to work, it is your job to express your reverence for Christ by doing the best that you can, knowing that your reward is in heaven. Let me say this. Earn your paycheck. I mean by that, work hard when you show up, give it all that you've got, know that the master in heaven is watching you and you will give an account to him, but also, as the scripture says here, that your reward comes from him. The Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. Ultimately, who's going to sign your paycheck for the work that you do? The Lord will reward you. Some of you in marriages have discovered that everything you do must be for the Lord because you're not getting anything from that spouse. You feel like you're giving it all. And so you started going into every day saying, Jesus, I'm going to be a faithful wife or husband because you are my Lord and I'm doing it for you. And you know how powerful that is. Anyway, that's the proper motivation. We're to be obedient children and responsible parents and faithful spouses because Jesus is Lord and he's watching over us. And the same is true in the workplace. Lord, I believe you give the reward. And so I'm working for you ultimately. And I'm looking for your reward. I want to earn my paycheck today by being faithful to you as my God. Now, there's an instruction that comes not only to slaves, but also to masters in this passage. And I want you to note it. And I'm going to summarize it by saying, like verse 9 says, there's no favoritism with God, so treat everyone the same. That is a eternal principle that is embedded here in the discussion to masters. Employers, don't be full of yourself. Don't think that you are better than the people who work for you. You are not. The teaching of Jesus is that we need to relate to one another, to our employees, as well as our employers knowing that the ground is level at the cross. And it is from this level playing field which we operate at work. The, the master has said, listen, master, you do the same thing. You show respect and out of reverence for Christ, you do what is just and fair sincerely from your heart for the people who work for you. You know, we have people who work for us here at First Baptist Church. And I have expressed to our ministry staff, I want us to be a great employer. Why? Out of reverence for Christ, that's why. I want us to be a great place to work. I don't want it to be a difficult environment to work in. Out of reverence for Christ. And I want us to show respect and sincerity of heart for everybody who works for us, no matter who they are, no matter what position they have. And so the Scripture says, 
Look, work out of a level playing field, treat everybody the same. And then I want you to note this phrase. And if you'll look at verses nine, verse 9 again. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Do you see that? Now, I know I'm talking to people who employ others. And it's hard for us to envision an employer-employee relationship without some threat. Because there's law and order in the workplace. But as a style, as a way of relating people to people who work for you, do not assume the style of continual threat and menace. When you are threatening and menacing, you are like that red dragon in Revelation 11 who is about to devour the child. You're not really representing the God who loves you and has called you to freely respond to his love. There is threat in the gospel. But it is not the threat which is emphasized in the evangelism and teaching of the early church. Instead, they are calling people to trust Christ out of the love that Christ has given them and the salvation that he freely offers. It is all good news. It is the emphasis on good news in the Scripture. And for you as an employer, to not threaten and menace as a style of life, but instead to come with loving concern and seek to maximize all the gifts of the people who work for you. That's what the Scripture is teaching. When I read those words, do not threaten them, I think to myself, why would God say that to an employer if it was not his heart as well? Some of you have the picture of the menacing God in your head. Maybe you grew up with a picture of the menacing God. I remember an old deacon who told me one time when I was a young preacher, he said, I know what God will do. I know what God will do. I said, what's that? He killed two of my children. I know what God will do. Do you think that faithfully represents the character of God? Is God coercing you into good behavior by threat and menace? Is that why you stay in line? Because you don't want the whipping? You don't want the beating? God's got a higher motive for you. God doesn't just want slavish obedience out of you. He wants loving participation in his work. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you to demonstrate the depth and breadth of his love so that you would love him. And love must be free to be real. And if our motive is not love, then it's fear. 
And perfect love casts out fear, the Apostle John says, because fear has torment. You know the torment of being under the menace, of being under the threat, of being worried always that you're going to lose your job if you step out of line. They'll fire you just like that. You behave, you stay in line. You know that fear and that menace. That's not how God intends for you to live for Him in this world and serve Him and represent Him. Now, I know there's law in the gospel. The scripture even talks about the law of Christ. But brothers and sisters, the law boils down to two things in the teachings of Jesus, and both of them are love. And we must get past the picture of the menacing God, if we are ever to truly know him in the beauty of his character. We are doing him an injustice to picture him as the red dragon ready to devour. That's the devil. God made you, and he loves you, and he longs for you, and his heart is passionate for you, and he calls you to himself. And he will not coerce you and force you. He asks that you serve him and come to him freely. Whosoever will may come. Now listen. There's no favoritism with God. There's no favoritism with God. Employers, employees, don't treat people differently because they have political clout or money. It's a scandal in the church when we differentiate people on the basis of their possessions. Jesus didn't teach us that. That's wrong. How long has it been since you read the words of James? Oh, he got all fired up about this. You ought to read his little letter. What he says about people who favor the rich over the poor in the church of Jesus Christ. There is no favoritism with God. God loves the poor as much as he loves the rich. And if I read my Bible right, sometimes God stands on the side of the poor because they have no one to stand for them rather than the rich who have so many voices on their side. In fact, it is the calling of God's people to give a voice to the poor and the voiceless and the orphan and the widow who have no voice, no leverage, no power to apply to the authorities of their day. It is the charge of the church to be a voice for those who have no voice. God gave you a voice. When King Lemuel's mother talks to him in Proverbs 31, she says, Lemuel, when you become king, I don't want you living it up, getting all the finest wine, deadening your mind and your senses and your reason with liquor now that you can afford the best. That's not what kings can do because if you do it, you know what will hap happen, King Lemuel? You will, re you will not fulfill your most sacred obligation to the poor and the widow in your realm. So Lemuel, you stay sober because I've called you to a higher calling. You're the king, and you must watch for those who have no voice. 
There is no favoritism with God. I can't even imagine that. I tell you, I live in a world where everything is structured and layered in classes, by economy and race, and everything's divvied up, and we all figure out how much we're worth by our net worth in the bottom line. What we're worth. When they came to Jesus, his enemies, they had a question they wanted to ask him. They wanted him to be honest about paying taxes. And of course, the people who get the taxes have a big stick. And so the enemies came to Jesus and they said, Hey, we have a question for you. Uh, we know that you always do what is right. And that you have no regard. For a person's status or position. They tell him that. You don't care about their status or position. Is it right to pay taxes or not? I think it was the reputation of Jesus. That he loved the outcast. As well as the man on the throne. He cared for the poor. As well as the man in fine clothes. To him they were equally of value. And you have not reached the position of Jesus yet if you value the wealthy and the people with authority above those who are poor and have no voice. And you must tell yourself every day, we are all equal in God's sight. Now, I told you the seeds of the destruction of slavery are sown in this passage. And it is in this teaching, there is no favoritism with God. Where do you think the human engine got the notion that all men are created equal? That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights, governments are established among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governor. Where do you think that happened? That egalitarian spirit, that notion that everybody's equal. It came right here. The seeds of it are sown in a faithful interpretation of the Word of God. Even in this passage about slaves and masters, there is no favoritism with God. And a man who follows Christ and knows that he has no regard for authority or position or wealth or power, but he loves everybody the same, will one day have that in his heart. And he will know that the golden rule, do unto others, as you would have them do unto do. you, will not allow him to practice the oppression of the poor. Hey, we've got a great God. He came to us when we were beat up and lying in the ditch half naked. We didn't have the energy to rise from that ditch. The robbers took everything we had and there was no way we could fix ourselves. He saw us in our need. He stopped by. He took care of our wounds and carried us to the place of comfort and consolation. 
That's what God has done for us. And his charge to us is, you do the same. You do the same. Don't you dare devalue people because they are sick or poor or not powerful. Don't throw them in categories that dismiss them from your life. They are important to God. Jesus gave us the final exam. The final exam is not about how you treated all the people who had authority over you and can make your life miserable. It's about how you treated the people that were hungry and thirsty and locked up and sick. That is the barometer of your walk with the Savior. There is no favoritism with God. I think about those two things when we come to the time of a response. First thing, do not threaten them. There's a good God in heaven who's calling you to himself because he loves you and he knows it is your highest and greatest good. You need his forgiveness, you need his rescue and his salvation. And he wants you to come freely. He wants you to come joyfully. He wants you to break out of the life you're stuck in and trust him with your heart. And he'll not coerce you to do it. There are consequences for not receiving Christ, but he's calling you to be constrained by his love. So I call you to trust Jesus because he loves you. He gave his life for you on the cross. And he seeks for you only your highest and greatest good in calling you to himself. And for everybody who thinks, well, I can't ever be a full member of the family of God. My past is too checkered. My sins are too great. The hole I fell in is too deep. Let me just say, God's no respecter of persons. And he loves to tell the story of a harlot who got saved. And a thief who came out of that tree and trusted Jesus. There's no favoritism with him. He sees everybody the same, including you. And the offer, he says, is this. Whosoever will, let him come. Let him drink of the water of life freely, without any cost. That's the kind of God he is. That's how much he loves you. Let's bow our head together. Lord, we pray on this day of worship that you would embed in our heart these truths that you teach us through the text. Lord, that we would work as unto you, that we would do our work as followers of Christ, that we would do our best because our paycheck comes from heaven. Lord, that we would not show favoritism nor manipulate people with threats, but God, that our character would be like yours and that you would teach us 
how to love others as you have loved us. Holy Spirit, have your way in this room, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.